Architects have a lot of negotiating to do. But when we call Nehru the architect of India, we mean he had a plan and, and he oversaw its implementation. Um, and I think that myth that invests him posthumously with more power than he had. I mean, we might. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Lake Podcast. I'm your host, Karthik Nachiban. These days, we hear a lot about Nehru and Nehru's India, of the first Indian Prime Minister's achievements, defeats, failures, and foibles. Much ink has been spilled by trying to understand and explain Nehru's leadership over the 17 years he was Indian Prime Minister on issues like foreign policy, economic development, social policy, how the Nehru government dealt with minorities, and how Nehru wielded power over independent India. A lot of what we know about Nehru and Nehru's India and Nehruvian ideals, however, may not be true, or should I say entirely true. We have become accustomed to analyzing and understanding this period in Indian history and of Nehru himself through certain shibboleths, whether it's non-alignment, socialism, secularism. These tropes reveal much, but they can also conceal. To better understand and reflect on Nehru's India and Nehru himself, especially given the increased number of and access to resources at hand today, it is incumbent on scholars to use different frames and approaches to revisit and reassess some of these myths that exist around Nehru and rewrite those that do not hold. And that is what LSE historian Taylor Sherman has done in her new book. Nehru's India, A History in Seven Myths, published by Princeton University Press in October 2022. Here is Professor Sherman on Nehru's India. Hi, Taylor. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, looking forward to talking to you. Um, I want to begin by asking, um, if you can just share to our listeners how you began thinking about uh, myths around Nehru and Nehru in India and, and why they had to be revisited. Sure. Hi, Karthik, and thanks for inviting me to, to chat at your podcast. Um, so how did I begin to think about this project? I, it really originated with my second book project, which was about Muslims in Hyderabad. So in 1948, the government of India invaded Hyderabad in the police action. Um, and I found a trove of documents from the Ministry of States uh, that had been recently made available in the government of India archives at the National Archives of India. And so I was reading about what happened to Muslims in India, in, in Hyderabad, in, uh, between 1948 and 1956. And of course, whenever you're reading about something, you, you don't want to just sort of write a book that says this happened, then this happened, then this happened, this happened. You want to say, OK, here's a series of events and what do they mean about something larger? And naturally, uh, when doing any research about Muslims, you begin to think about secularism in India, right? And so as I'm doing this research about what was happening to Muslims in Hyderabad, I begin to think about and read about secularism in India. Mm -hmm. And of course, so this is the early, early noughties. So we're 
we're sort of between two crises of secularism in India, so it's mid, mid noughties rather. We're in the middle of a crisis of secularism in India, a long one, yeah, several, several decades long. But there's a lot of writing about secularism in India. Um, and of course, there are, there are many different views about what secularism was like under Nehru, um, but none of them seem to match what I was seeing. So there's there's one view of secularism under Nehru, which was that which is that it worked, right? There there was there was this kind of composite culture, uh, there was widespread tolerance, uh, the government mostly protected minorities, the mo the minorities were mostly happy with the way they were protected, uh, there was widespread uh, communal peace under Nehru, right? That's that's one version of how secularism worked. Under Nehru. And then there's another right wing version of how secularism worked, which is that um, it was uh, capitulation to to Muslim interests, uh, that Hindus were made second class citizens in their own country and all that Hindu narrative about about the Nehru years. Neither one of those was what I was seeing in, in Hyderabad. Right. So in Hyderabad, um, there wasn't peace. Muslims were attacked uh, in a very one sided um, burst of violence after the invasion of September 1948. Probably tens of thousands were murdered and removed and, and ousted from their homes and had their properties taken and never really got compensation or were not reinstated. Uh, thousands and thousands were removed from government jobs. Uh, Muslims in Hyderabad were highly anxious and didn't, weren't comfortable, didn't feel safe weren't happy with the settlement um, that they that they got, but also were not allowed to complain. Every time they they raised their voice to say, hey, we're not happy with what's happening to us, they were told, go to Pakistan. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm clapping my hands. <laughs> they were told, go to Pakistan mm -hmm. if you're not happy here. And so that doesn't fit either of the narratives about secularism that we have in the 21st century, right? There wasn't peace and harmony, and uh, and, and there wasn't uh, widespread capitula capitulation to Muslims and their interests. And so that got me thinking uh, about the other things that we associate with Nehru. We started about the other kind of abstract nouns that we associate with Nehru. So um, non-alignment, secularism, socialism, the strong state, uh, the successful democracy, high modernism, and I began to look for hints that these other things that everyone talks about and assumes defined the Nehruvian era, maybe maybe things were a bit more complicated. Maybe they were similar to how secularism was. Like maybe it wasn't how everybody talks about it. Um, and then as I read other people's work, I saw scholars, I saw two things happening. I saw scholars working on things that were allied to socialism, for example, working on um, agricultural uh, policy, agricultural reform, or um, planning. And I saw them not using the word socialism. So smart people were beginning to think, whoa, this isn't, I, I, this word does not work. Let's keep it out of our work because it's too it's it, it it's it's too hot to touch. And then I saw it being other words being dropped into scholarship without any without any reflection. So I thought, okay, let's 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 do this. Let's let's look at these Neruvian ideals and see if they match up to how people speak about them at the uh, now in the twenty first century, and if they match up to even how they were spoken about at the time. Um. 
maybe one thing perhaps we should get get out of the way is the book focuses on myths, um, and you do cover what you mean by a myth because I think that's pretty important, right? What what's yeah. a myth? Okay, yeah, fair fair point. I mean, when I say a myth, I I actually don't mean that the the word secularism is is completely false or socialism just doesn't apply in, in India uh, to describe, or, you know, that we can't describe Nehru's India as democratic. Um, I'm not saying they're completely false. What I'm saying is that using these words alone, saying oh, Nehru was socialist, that, that simple phrase has lost its explanatory power. And how, how has that happened? Well, the, the word socialism, or the word secularism, has come to be wrapped with meanings that uh, are more uh, associated with our contemporary times, with the 21st century, rather than uh, embedded in uh, the context of its time, right? So we, I hope you all accept, your, your listeners all accept that words, their meaning changes over time, their, our understanding of them is contextual uh, and situated within cultural contexts. And so um, when, when we, when we just drop a word like secularism or socialism or non-alignment into a conversation, assuming that everyone knows what it means, uh, we are propagating a myth about it. Um, and people don't know what those things mean anymore. And if so, if we take a step back and go, hey, wait a minute, what did secularism mean to people in the 40s, 50s and 60s? What did democracy mean to people in, uh, in the Nehru years? And, and just, just investigate what these things meant to the people of the time, then we might get a closer sense of what those words meant and, and begin to treat those concepts with more nuance. Um, why and how do these myths last? You mentioned there are certain ideas like non-alignment, which, 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 which keep getting repeated over and over and over again. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing there's a social and ideological infrastructure that also not just sustains, but perpetuates these myths for various reasons, right? Yeah, okay. Why do they last? Um, so I think there's a couple of reasons why the myth lasts, right? First of all, they're being they're being perpetuated constantly. Yeah. They are serving political purposes in the present time. And so take the myth of Nehru, the architect of independent India. This is something that has been propagated by the Congress Party um, pretty pretty successfully and pretty relentlessly since Nehru passed in May 1964. Now, I, I don't want to um, sort of, I, I don't want to suggest that the Congress Party is unusual in this way. Actually, it's very common mm -hmm. uh, to protect the legacy of a leader after they pass away or after they, they um, leave office. So think of the American presidential libraries it's all about protecting the the legacy and the way the history is written of these of these great american presidents well great or not great right and so it's it's actually a common practice in political parties across the world and amongst political leaders and their their families to protect the legacy of and to and to try to burnish the image of that leader after they've left office so that's pretty normal and congress does it um uh, but i think also opposition parties are also part of burn of, of propagating the idea that Nehru was the architect of India, right? Why? Because they want to build him up and give him, present him as if he has lots of power, 
only to throw tomatoes at him and, and throw eggs at him and, and paint graffiti on his statues, right? So because a, a, a nemesis without any power isn't really a useful villain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think uh, political parties uh, are find him useful for today's debates. Now, I don't think they're presenting his ideas accurately or, or subtly at all, but why are the myths perpetuated? Because they're useful. Uh, but the second reason the myths uh, continue has to do with um, the sources available to historians. Um, and here we have a big problem in India, uh, which many of your listeners may be aware of, that it is very hard to get sources about post-colonial India. And so the government hasn't released uh, tranches of, of files. You can't just go to the National Archives and say, okay, I want to see Home Department files or uh, foreign uh, external affairs files from 1947 to 1967. You can't, they just don't exist or they won't give them to you. And so what do we have instead? Uh, we have the selected works of Jawaharlal Nehru. Uh, and if you, if you only have that in front of you, then you're bound to see Nehru is very important and, and see these ideas associated with Nehruvianism as central to the age. And so I think the, the primary sources available to historians are, are part of the propagation of the myth as well. So historians and scholars are also guilty of propagating these myths in part because we don't have good access to, to mm. um, sources that might give us alternative views. So tell us some more about these archives and sources. Uh, one um, archive that you mentioned in the book is at the LSE. Mm-hmm. And, and you being at the at the LSE too, um, I guess that worked out in finding uh, a massive tranche of, of, of sources, right? Yeah, it's quite interesting. So, I mean, I think a lot of scholars are doing a lot of interesting work um, in 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 India, and there is there is material in India that I have used and that they have used. And so, the National Archives is releasing things. I mean, they've they've declassified quite a lot of the Ministry of Agriculture um, material. I assume because they think it's relatively uncontroversial, right? Um, good luck getting anything related to um, anything more controversial. Um, but and then local archives, so state archives, the Delhi State Archives, um, Maharashtra State Archives, they they do have bits and pieces. Again, not the full runs of files. There are also private archives and mm-hmm. digitization projects and newspapers that are constantly being made available to people. So there are things available in India that I've used and that other scholars are using. But there's a really surprising archive. There was a really surprising archive like right under my feet at LSE. Um, so that's the London School of Economics. It has a kind of a large, a long uh, history of connection with India. Everybody knows that Ambedkar went to LSE, but also lots of the people in the pages of the book, lesser known figures, traveled through LSE on their way to India mm-hmm. in one, one way or another, or on their way back to India or on their way to India as advisors. And so, uh, um, an LSE is a social science institution and their librarians used to be concerned with gathering materials about what they called good governance mm. across the across what was the British Empire and then across the developing world. And so they have all these um, public, so they have runs of um, the legislative assembly debates and um, and the constituent assembly constituent assembly debate and things like that. but they also have all these government reports which sound very boring, 
if you've ever read a government report from the era of the Raj, mm. you would think, oh, no, <laughs> keep it away from me. I'm not going to learn anything. It's going to be full of statistics that are utterly meaningless and hide everything interesting that's happening. Mm. But the government of India and, and the various state governments were actually quite candid to themselves as they evaluated their projects in the Nehru years. And so the the, the government reports are, are quite interesting. Uh, and and uh, and then there's also things that are published for propaganda purposes for for the dissemination of information to Indians about India. And that is also very interesting. Um, and so there's there are stacks and stacks of of these reports in at LSE um, that give us a, a, a an interesting picture of what is ha what happened or how the government understood itself uh, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And I'm sure some of them, or many of them, are available in bits and pieces in archives in India. They just happen to be in one place at LSE, and I happen to work there, so I could pop there mm -hmm. quite regularly and, and pick up one or two and, and take some notes and then get back to my teaching. Mm -hmm. So so this is a book about Nehru, but also the Nehruvian era. Uh, and you provide a new understanding of this early period in Indian history. Um, what does your research reveal about this era? Okay. So forgive me, I'm gonna talk for a little while now. I think I've got I've got kind of seven things to say about, I mean, there are seven myths, but the myths are organized according to those, um, the tenets of the Nehruvian, tenets of the Nehruvian era, right? So the, there's a, a chapter on Nehru the architect, on um, non-alignment, on secularism, on socialism, on the strong state, on the successful democracy and on high modernism in India. Uh, and each of those asks readers, each chapter asks readers to be a little bit more careful with how they use these terms. So I certainly don't want people to stop, uh, people to like read the table of contents and then say, oh, India wasn't secular or India wasn't socialist at that time. That's not what, that's not the argument at all. It's just let's understand how people at the time use these terms and uh, and be careful about how we are conflating our understandings of these terms with their understanding. So that's, that's, the 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 reevaluation of what's called the Nehruvian consensus, but I think more than just hey be careful with these terms, which is not a very interesting argument. Um, the book makes seven arguments. So I think the first and most important one is let's let's decenter Nehru. Yeah, in Nehru's India, he was uh, a human. He didn't have an iPhone. At <laughs> uh, he was an interesting man, very charismatic. Let's not pretend he didn't have any influence. Of course he did. But to call him the architect is to uh, invest him with power that he didn't have. Um, real world architects, of course, like I'm thinking of, you know, Balkrishna Doshi or Zaha Hadid. Real world architects are really working teams, don't they? And they have to negotiate with landowners and neighbors and um, you know, materials and laborers and everything. And so they, they don't get to design something and then implement it. That In the real world, architects have a lot of negotiating to do. But when we call Nehru the architect of India, we mean he had a plan and and he oversaw its implementation. Um, and I think that myth that invests him posthumously with more power than he had. I mean, we might think of him more as a kind of real world architect who had a lot of negotiating to do and didn't ever get to fully realize his it, well, I don't even think he had a blueprint, though. So I think maybe it's not worth thinking of him as a real world architect. Mm 
Instead, I think it's important to think of him uh, as having a number of roles, but I think the most important role he had was as patron. So dynamic, charismatic, enthusiastic people who were parties, uh, who were who were part of the national movement would come to Nehru and say, I see a problem with refugees. I want to solve it. And Nehru would say, go, here you go. And he would patronize their project. What, what do I mean by that? Well, he would give them permission. He would often help them set up the project outside of the framework of the ordinary um, colonial state so they could go off and do it without a lot of bureaucracy. Um, and he would help them get a little bit of funding, but mostly the, the projects that took off uh, were those that required the least amount of funding. Mm -hmm. um, so let's see Nehru not so much as an architect, but as a patron, as a person who surrounded himself with very bright, enthusiastic people who could make things happen. Um, so the second point about the, the era then is that this is not an era of ideology where Nehru said, so everyone obeyed. Instead, I think it's important to see the Nehru years as years of experimentation, where there were goals and ideals, but the government and everybody involved in governing India was experimenting with how to reach those ideals and how to achieve those goals. Um, and they used all the tools of modern social science mid-century social science to do that. So they, they set up a pilot project. Uh, they evaluated the pilot project. They rolled it out to a larger area. They uh, re-evaluated the larger projects. And then they adjusted again and again and again. So this is a really iterative and heuristic approach to, to policy and not an ideological one, right? This is very different from Mao's China um, for all sorts of reasons, but it's it's much more experimental, much more um, willing to engage in adjustments. And so then I think the third point that I'd like to make about the era is that these experiments lasted a long time. I think we can see them going all the way through the 1960s. So there is this tendency um, to see the Nehru era through the lens of the constitution. Okay, let's look at the constituents assembly debates. These are big important people having big ideas, writing them all down. And then we have this founding moment and just about everything that happens until the 1960s can be explained by the constitutional assembly debates and by examining the constitution. Well, I mean, I think that that doesn't give a lot of credit to how constitutions work, right? If you think about um, Rohit Lee's book on the constitution or Granville Austin, they argue that constitutions aren't these like texts that set things in stone, they are worked by people, by lawyers, by courts. Um, and that is absolutely the case for India. And, and, it's, and it's also the case that the constitution was an experiment, but there were other experiments that get going. Um, you know, land reforms, for example, continue all the way into the 1960s. There's an appeal made in 1961 to state governments uh, to ask them to please complete their land reforms. Yeah. Um, they're, they're experimenting with democracy in the form of Panchayati Raj, which is um, introduced in, I think the first Panchayati Raj um, elections are in 1959, right? And then, and then they begin and they experiment with different kinds of elections. And it, by the time Nehru dies, they're just getting the hang of Panchayati Raj, of, of village level government, right? So these experiments go all the way through, through the 1960s. Uh, okay, so fourth point is, 
um, that these new programs and policies were, as far as possible, created at a distance from the existing bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. So there's this assumption in the scholarship that, okay, um, India and the government of India and Heru inherited the colonial bureaucracy. Yeah, the Raj, they built up this great edifice and it was so strong and powerful. And then because of the exigencies of partition and the war over Kashmir and the need for development, oh, they just took over the apparatus and started uh, manipulating it and using it, trying uh, to use it for these new purposes. I didn't see that at all. In fact, I saw every project that was important to them was set up away from the existing bureaucracy. The Planning Commission was not in the Constitution. It didn't have a ministry. It was it was a classic example of this kind of move away from the existing um, bureaucracy. Doesn't mean they escaped it entirely, um, but I think it's important to to move away from the idea that they inherited everything from the Raj and, and just kept kept working that system. Um, fifth point is that they um, the participation of the people in India was deeply important to Nehru and to the people around him. So I think there's an assumption in the scholarship that the state that they inherited from the Raj was very powerful and they wanted to do lots of things. And so even though they had mobilized millions of people to chuck the British out, they then after 1947 or after 1950 told all these Indians, sit still, sit down, keep your mouth shut, let the state do its work. That is absolutely not what happens. They constantly appeal to the people to do everything from build their own houses and build their own schools uh, to imagine uh, how to govern themselves. And so this is post-colonial nationalism. They are trying to involve the people. Let me say that this is a complicated dance, yeah? So you have these elites who are asking the people to demand more of the government, but also trying to shape what they can demand. Yeah, uh, so it's a it is it's not the same as um, as anti-colonial nationalism, but the you know that fat that um, famous um, phrase of discipline and mobilize is still applicable here. So they want to mobilize them, but in in disciplined ways, in ways that that suit them. But they're not in control of everything, and they they do want people to take responsibility and control. Um, and so that's the sixth point, really, which is that this is the height of the power of India's elites. They are so the Savarna castes, the the landed elites. They are at the height of their power here, and this is a very interesting moment for them because they. They feel they have a lot of responsibility towards um, what they call the backward areas, backward costs, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of patronizing language, but they know they're in this incredible position of privilege and they, they are trying to use it to mobilize the very people who will eventually try to oust them from their positions of privilege. Mm -hmm. um, and that makes it, I think, quite interesting. And the last point, the last argument of the book is that this whole period is quite internationalist. Mm -hmm. We think of India as kind of isolated in this period. Oh, it's not alliance, so it's uh, not really involved in the big dramas of the age. Um, but actually, uh, people, experts, ideas, artists from all over the world are traveling to India, and Indians are traveling all over the, all over the world. And so India is absolutely integrated into the the flow of ideas 
largely coming from the West, but also um, in, uh, involving decolonizing countries. Uh, and India sees itself as a leader towards those decolonizing countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that internationalist element, I think, has to be borne in mind as we think about what India's role was in this period. Mm-hmm. Um, Sorry, there's I'll... a long spiel there. No, that, that, that was great. And was, um, I want to get to each of these myths in a bit. But before that, um, part of that decentering away from Nehru that you do in the book is also look at the the role and the importance of certain um, uh, key figures, people like Appa Pant, uh, people like Vinod, uh, someone like Vinod Babave, uh, Sukumar Sen. Uh, so all these, all, all these individuals had a massive impact that we don't really understand or think about, again, because of that Nehruvian um, hangover, right? Yeah. And your book actually does unpack some of what these key figures did. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is if you if you see pictures of Nehru at the time, um, he's always got a group of people around him. And so the, the person who's actually running the project is almost always next to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's Sukumar Sen or it's, um, SS Bhatnagar or you know any of these people any you know SK Day uh, they're always next to him in the photo and yet historians are just inclined to invest the power and the uh, the authority in Nehru and I think that's um, you know that's our own failing but it doesn't it, it does make things more interesting to to widen the scope of who we consider to be important historical actors. And I think there are also some important women to add in there, mm-hmm. people like um, Hansa Mehta and Durgabai Deshmukh, who does some mm-hmm. very cool stuff experimenting with new state structures to try to help uh, women, especially in rural areas. Um, so much very important to to begin to look away from Nehru. I mean, I, I see myself as kind of, so Nehru himself really um, didn't want to be uh, made into an icon. He understood the power of of um, images and of people living up to ideals uh, and the importance of doing that in a democratic age, but he did not want to be made into an icon. He resisted having his name and his face plastered on things. He told he actually requested the public, please stop asking me if you can name your school or your library or your road after me. I don't mm-hmm. I don't like it. Stop. <laughs> um, and yet he was put up on a pedestal. Um, and he has been kept on that pedestal. And I like to see the book as kind of lending him a hand to help mm-hmm. him get down from that pedestal. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and let's not put any of these other people up on that pedestal either, right? Let, let's, let's treat them all as fallible human beings who do interesting mm-hmm. things, but who have to negotiate with one another as they do them mm-hmm. uh, in complex historical ways that, that make writing history tricky but it will eventually, I think, get us to a clearer picture of, of how things actually operated. So let's get into some of these myths. Um, so the first one is um, focuses on foreign policy and mm-hmm. non-alignment. And, and there's so much here in this chapter, and I really love sinking into it because my work deals in foreign policy as well. And, and the holy cow you tackle here is um, non-alignment, the strategy that um, that being actively neutral and separate um, from various polls would actually help India achieve its foreign policy interests uh, and also the space to make decisions, right? which later came to be known as strategic autonomy. Uh, and you argue that there's more, there's way more to Indian foreign policy than just non-alignment. And to get a holistic perspective, we have to really unpack how Indian foreign policy was also practiced across the world 
by Indian diplomats and officials. Uh, and you lay and you have these different layers or, or circles. So the international order, the Commonwealth and the neighborhood. Uh, and the key point here is that it really became hard to find coherence here, given the conflicting approaches that Indian officials had to take in each of these circles, right? And that we need to really step away from the broader structural context, which was a Cold War, and the strategy that India had to deploy to navigate a very uh, hard and hostile world, which is not alignment, right? But it was actually much more complicated than that. And there was one quote here which really struck me, and it was it's 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 a great line, and I'm I'm just gonna read it out. Um, if Indian foreign policy was a six-yard sari, non-alignment might be likened to the intricate zari work on the borders and the palu. Uh, it required expertise to imagine. It was laboriously produced and it drew the eye, but the rest of the garment was woven with a different thread. Yeah. Um, so I think um, that's. Uh, thank you for quoting that. I, I spent a long time on that metaphor. <laughs> um, but look, let's let's think about non-alignment. When we think about who propagates the, these myths, yeah, you asked me earlier, who propagates the myths? I said, oh, the Congress party, oh, the, the opposition parties. Who's responsible for the myth of non-alignment? Arguably, the U.S. government has a lot of responsibility mm -hmm. to bear because when India said, uh, when Indian diplomats said, uh, India will will stay away from power politics. We're at. We're not taking part in any of these blocks. We are non-aligned. The Americans took them took those statements at face value. They were like really incredibly naive, without looking at the really deep uh, and long-lasting um, and wide connections between India and the rest of the world and the Western world in particular, and the Americans. Right. So uh, the Americans have, uh, it was between the wars or maybe during the First World War that the Americans actually surpassed the British as the number one trading partner of India. They're in Indians, India's economy is intimately connected with the Americans. Uh, its military procure procurement is all Western facing in the Nehru years. All, all Nehru has to do is actually hint of maybe buying something from the Soviets and the British and the Americans all come running to say, no, please buy it from us. Mm -hmm. um, and so the argument there about non-alignment is that India was born into the, 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 or the Western, the capitalist system because it came out of the British empire, which was part of that system. And so I, it's certainly the case that if India had managed to achieve actual material non-alignment, right? then it, it might have had more strategic freedom. But non-alignment was a matter of mistaking um, the, the goal for the reality, right? Mm -hmm. They wanted non-alignment, um, but they, they were materially entangled with the West. I mean, there are some, yeah. So, but then if we take that and think, okay, so non-alignment doesn't define India's foreign policy. In fact, what does? I think India had its own ideas about what what the world should look like yeah mm -hmm. india had its own version of internationalism and it's i'm not unique in saying this um of course um uh manu Bhavan has said it right in his book about uh, one world um and who was who was perpetuating these ideas about how the world should should look it was this 
group of charismatic individuals who weren't trained diplomats, who were appointed by Nehru to be India's ambassadors all around the world and representatives all around the world. Mm -hmm. And they are such an interesting and motley crew of people, right? Mm -hmm. So the, these people who were appointed as representatives for India had achieved a lot in their own lives. Yeah, they are, they are decorated members of the nationalist movement. They are people who have their own opinions. And so and Nehru sends them out into the world and they do what they like. You know, they they invent India's foreign policy on the ground, on off the hook, right? And and so uh Apapant is a really great example of that. And he um Berenice, you know, Guillaume Richard has just um, published an article about his work in, in East Africa. Uh fostering um, friendship between Indians and East Africans. But none of this is directed by Nehru. He's kind of informed later so far as he knows anything at all. Um, and then uh, Abapant leaves East Africa and goes and works on the Tibet case, where he, he and a couple of other people based, uh, not in Delhi, um, but based closer to the Tibetan borders, offer a lot of support to Tibetan rebels. Again, not with Nehru's explicit, and not under Nehru's explicit instructions, but because they feel that this aligns with their view of the world. And Nehru appointed them because they shared broadly ideals and goals for the world. Did that mean that um, they all achieved everything um, that they wanted to? Of course not. <laughs> Of course not, actually. They created a lot of problems for for the the quote-unquote government of India's policies, right? So uh, Apapant and a few other people encouraged the Tibetans uh, uh, in, in, their, in their claims for independence. And it seems like they encouraged the Dalai Lama to seek refuge in India around 1956. And then when the Dalai Lama met Nehru, Nehru was like, no, go, go home. <laughs> um, and, and so there's the lack of coordination is very interesting. There's coordination around ideals and goals, but they're they're not lined up with a kind of bureaucratic process that controls everything uh, in any kind of coherent way. Did I mean did the endurance of non-alignment um, um, as an idea and as a trope, but but also I mean was it also a form of status that it had to be maintained at a certain level? Um, despite what was happening on the ground, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was a it was a goal. It was a wish. It was an important stance. They got a lot out of non-alignment. Yeah, so I mean, think about things like um, aid. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, all all they have to do is get get the Soviets to agree to build one steel plant, mm -hmm. and boom, the Americans want to build one. <laughs> Yeah, and um, actually, um, so there's the uh, this book Red Globalization by Oscar Sanchez Suboni, um, and he shows very well using Soviet documents. He shows very well that the Soviets knew they couldn't compete with the Americans; they just didn't have the resources. And so they, the Soviets, helped the Indians play the Americans off against the Soviets. So they knew that the Soviets knew, oh, if we offer you a little bit of money, the Americans will offer you more, and then you get, and then you get, you know, three times more than you thought you would. Um, uh, and so non-alignment, don't get me wrong, non-alignment was incredibly useful to India. It just isn't an explanation of their material entanglements uh, with, with either, with either block. They are not truly non-aligned in that sense. They get more aid, 
from from the US than Pakistan does. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, take movies for example, <laughs> you know, a really simple mm-hmm. and kind of trite example. Not not trite, I think, because this is about culture. About twelve Soviet movies every year came to India and India made a big deal of bringing these movies. They had Soviet film festivals where there was, uh, you know, ministers presence and important actresses who garland, garlanded Soviet um, uh, members of the film industry as they came and oversaw these films being viewed in India, being showed in India, 12 films a year. Yeah. At the same time, the Americans are sending 200 films a year. Yeah, and they're running. They're they're incredibly popular, um, and so there's just there's just uh, the India would like competition, and they do a good job of creating the competition. But the Americans had won from the beginning, really, or the West, if you prefer, That's the capitalist so, block. Yeah, there, there's there's so much great work on on aid, in particular David Engelman's book, The Price of Aid, also looks at how the American and and, and Russian approaches worked off one another. Um, in India yeah, and years, right? I think he's absolutely yeah. right that there yeah. is an economic cold war in yeah. in India, but it's creates it's a it's a kind of it's uh it's a war of I- ideas, mm. not uh, materially. Um, the U.S. is so much more entrenched than the Soviets. Than mm. So the second myth is secularism, and and here you 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 argue that Indian secularism did not mean or expect. Um, distance between politics or religion or the state eschewing religion, but instead uh, using it as a mechanism or a way to weave all religions into the national project. Uh, and here, even before the BJP and perhaps paving the way for the BJP, uh, the Congress really mastered the art of fusing religion and politics, right? And the trend was not to protect minorities or uphold their claims, but defer to majoritarian solutions. Um, and and one one key point here you make is that we often kind of focus on the stories of the lives of elite Muslims in India in those early years that have cast a shadow on the lives of millions of other Muslims across the country, right? So Indian secularism was a facade and not a foundation that obscured more than it revealed about the everyday aspects of secular life in India. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay, so an, another metaphor that I worked a lot on, uh, Indian secularism was a facade. So if you think of um, Indian, uh, uh, the approach between the state and religion as a building, secularism was a facade. And I don't mean that uh, in the sense that it was fake, mm-hmm. you know, that it was, a, you know, some kind of cover for something really sinister behind it. But just if you think about a building, the facade isn't, isn't the most important bit, right? It's not, the, it doesn't provide stability. It's not the foundation of that building. The facade gives it some kind of coherence on the outside and it sets the tone. So somebody walking into that building might have an idea from the outside of what's to be expected of them, right? So if we think about a policeman uh, understanding what his duties are, seeing the facade of the building matters to that policeman. Yes, so it does set the tone. Uh, it's not it's not a complete like cover for things, but behind the building, mm-hmm. all manner of crazy incoherent stuff can happen. And so, I mean, what I say about Congress's approach to secularism was that they did the facade very well. They set mm-hmm. the tone very well. How did they do that? They celebrated all religions. Uh, 
Uh, they loved Buddhism. Actually, what's really, really fascinating is how obsessed India in the 1950s is with Buddhism. Uh, so in 1956, they celebrate the 2500th anniversary of the birth of the Buddha, which was also his um, nirvana, his, his um, release from this life. Um, with grand celebrations where they invite dignitaries from around the world and they celebrate India as the home of Buddhism. Why do they do that? One, I think they're playing to stereotypes of India as this, um, you know, uh, as a spiritual land. Yeah. yeah. They, they had absorbed that from uh, Western Orientalists. Uh, two, they're trying to show that they celebrate all religions. Three, it's good diplomacy because countries around them, Sri Lanka, yeah. Burma, um, Tibet, yeah, Thailand, these are Buddhist countries. So, and India is trying to forge contacts with the rest of the world, not based on, on its colonial contacts. So I think it's good diplomacy. Um, but I think an important reason why India celebrates Buddhism so much in the 50s is there aren't many Buddhists. Mm-hmm. And so India can present itself as um, the spiritual country, that celebrates all religions, and yet there's very, very few people who then can claim uh, special treatment on the basis of being Buddhist. Now, uh, Ambedkar, when he converts with a lot of Mahar converts in 1956, that complicates that that equation. Um, So Congress does the facade very well. So what do they do? Uh, They celebrate all religions. They preserve sacred sites pretty reasonably well. uh, we all know the calendar of holidays that India celebrates and um, that government servants are lucky enough to get all those holidays off. Um, what uh, They celebrate exemplary individuals incredibly well, right? Look, look um, we have... Uh, we have Sayyid Mahmoud uh, how, in, in government. Um, how could we possibly be... Um, uh, accused of, of discriminating against minorities. We have these very powerful Muslims in, in important positions. Look, Nargis is Mother India. So, so Muslims do represent India. But I argue that those exemplary Muslims are a certain, have to, have to perform a certain kind of loyalty to India. They have to, they have to be Indian first, right? So Nargis plays a Hindu in Mother India. Mm-hmm. She doesn't play a Muslim, right? So they have to be Indian first. They have to be very careful about asserting uh, or, or or making any comments about their own community, whether they're Dalit or Muslim or, or anything. Um, and then what they obscure is what happens on an everyday level, mm-hmm. which is widespread sidelining of Muslim interests, um, widespread destruction of Muslim properties, uh, mosques. I think, uh, you know, uh, uh, in Delhi and in Hyderabad, we have the numbers and the numbers are in the book. Hundreds of, of sacred sites are destroyed in the years between 1946 and 1949 um, around partition and the integration of the state of Hyderabad. Hundreds are destroyed um, and not repaired. Uh, Muslims are systematically removed from government. All of this happening quietly. Uh, and I ask at one point in that chapter, where is Nehru? Mm. <laughs> ah, let me tell you, he objects to a lot of this. When Muslims are pushed out of government, he says, please don't do this. It's too fast. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't ask all these Muslims from government service in Hyderabad. 
and the government of Hyderabad ignores him. Yeah, he writes when a when mosques are destroyed, he is not made aware of them. Right, this is this is the remit of some local district officer. But sometimes the local Muslims will write to somebody like Molana Azad, um, appealing to him for help rebuilding their mosque. Azad will then uh, approach Nehru about it, and Nehru might write to the local, you know, chief minister. The chief minister will write write to the local officer, and the local officer will go, "I'm sorry." I can't can't reconstruct this mosque because it will it will create a riot. Nehru can't build mosques. Mm -hmm. He can't get a family reinstated into their home. All of that requires the cooperation of local officers. Who I mean, I I don't think it's fair to say that they're all they all default to the majoritarian view, but there's a lot of majoritarianism uh, at lower levels of government. Mm -hmm. And I think the you know the chapter on secularism also covers Dalits. Uh, and the approach to Dalits is also about uh, iconic individuals and iconic laws, right? So the Constitution, it abolished untouchability. Ambedkar wrote the Constitution. I mean, Ambedkar and Nehru are not friends. Mm -hmm. When Ambedkar dies, Nehru gives this very short speech in Parliament, which is really not very laudatory about Ambedkar. But they, but they managed to celebrate him a little bit. Um, and they, they pass these laws knowing that they'll fail. Knowing that actually um, Dalits, to, to actually transform the position of Dalits in society requires widespread social change that is so much more than the law. And so that's all part of the facade, right? The laws on secularism, the laws on uh, untouchability, they, 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 they set the tone. But even at the time, most of the people who understood how government worked, they knew that the law wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. The next uh, myth is on democracy. And, and here you focus on the relationship between um, democracy and elections. Um, and, and you challenge the notion that elections worked really great in those early years, which is what a lot of people uh, mentioned, right? And, and what instead you, you argue is that it created new problems like the reinforcement of caste uh, and the insidious influence of money in, mm -hmm. in the elections. Um, did, did Nehru regard democracy to be a system that was self-correcting? So all these problems that were being generated could eventually have been addressed internally through the whole, through, through the system itself. Mm. Well, I, um, whenever Nehru um, gives his thoughts on a subject, they, they take up between eight and 20 pages of uh, volume 71 of the selected works of Jawaharlal Nehru. He, mm -hmm. he was a very thoughtful man, but his thoughts were never um, sound bites, right? He, he never had a little red book like Mao. Um, so he was very thoughtful about democracy. He mm -hmm. understood it's the way, I think he was coming, he was made to understand the way it was being worked in India. Uh, by the time of the second election, there are a lot, the second general election between 1956 and 57, there are a lot of people who are saying um, to Nehru and out loud and writing in newspapers, wow, our system, which, uh, I mean, I think Ambedkar deserves a lot of credit for designing the, the system in a way that it was meant to help reduce caste affiliations. Mm -hmm. um, of course, we mustn't put Ambedkar up on a on a pedestal. If we if we help Nehru down, let's not put Ambedkar up and give him too much um, responsibility for it. It was a joint effort writing the constitution and the constitution has to be worked. 
But the system as it was designed was supposed to help reduce cat affiliations and it was feeding them, right? Mm. And we know this, I mean, obviously, MN Srinivas and people like that wrote about it in the 50s. So Indians were aware of it, Nehru was aware of it. Did he think it was a self-correcting system? No, he's a, he's a mid 20th century social scientist. So he understood that you had to make course corrections. And there, there was a big conversation that happens in the, in the early 1960s about what's wrong with India's democracy. Um, and the conversation is around what's called emotional integration. Um, and it has to do with, it, it arises in part because of the kerfuffle over Kerala uh, and in part because of um, a number of communal riots that break out. But there's this sense in the 1960s, gosh, our democracy is inflaming things. Mm -hmm. it, it's not its not making us um, exist peacefully, civilly uh, with people who are of different um, communal identities, community identities. They're aware of this. It's the 1960s. They're having these big conferences. Mm -hmm. um, but Nehru is um, not the architect yet. Yeah? Mm -hmm. He's the chairman of these conferences. Um, and the conferences are kind of designed to, to get everybody on board, to, to get all the political parties and all the journalists and all the educational institutions. It's a kind of nationalist project. Hey, let's all agree that we should talk more about how to do this whole democracy thing better. And what's interesting is that the outcome of the, the these emotional integration conferences or national integration conferences are sometimes called in the 1960s is that they decide that Indian citizens need more help understanding how democracy ought to work, mm -hmm. which I think is, um, you know, hypocritical at best, right? It's the it's the politicians who are working the system, uh, who who abuse it and use it um, to propagate caste affiliations and to um, in in corrupt ways to make money because they have to pay for their elections and and yeah and they all know this. And nobody's willing to do the kind of introspective work or to create the consensus necessary for broad reform. Um, India, it's the early 1960s, India only had three elections. It's, it was probably premature to call for widespread reform, although one of the things that they were doing was um, the Panchayati Raj, right? thinking about a different kind of democracy. So there's a lot of um, experimentation and thoughtfulness about what's wrong with India's democracy in, by the time you get to the third election. Mm -hmm. the, the other thought I had in this chapter was, how did the federalization of India and the creation of new states on a linguistic basis, how did that affect notions of democratic success and failure during that time? Um, or was that part of the, yeah. was that part of discussions or yeah, um, so it's not something I cover in the book very well. I mean, I think one of the challenges of the book was to, to keep it short. <laughs> um, but I think part of what they realized was that democracy can be used to inflame what they called parochial, what Nehru called parochial um, parochial forms of community, parochial approaches to, to democracy. And so, um, okay, take Bombay State. <laughs> the, during uh, democratic uh, elections, there was much more tension between Gujaratis and uh, Maharashtrians. And so part of the idea behind linguistic states is if you can create majority states, then 
then some of these ethnic tensions might go away, right? If it's mostly Gujaratis in Gujarat, then maybe there won't be any tensions. But of course, you can't create 100% pure states on a linguistic basis. There's always major m m minorities in terms of language. There's obviously cost plays into it in a much more important way than um, than language. But one of the yeah one of the ways they tried to resolve the, the what they called the problem of parochialism was to create linguistic states, hoping that that would eliminate that particular form of parochialism. Mm -hmm. Um, the next myth is on socialism, which really has a lot of legs and durability even today. Um, I think here the, there's the assumption that private industry and enterprise was rejected and neglected in those early years. And this misplaced faith um, undermined India's growth for, for nearly 40 years until the 1980s, right? Um, and it was also understood that planning was akin to socialism when it really was not, right? Um, and this myth also has a close connect to myths around the Indian state, which we will get to next. But what you show in this chapter is that, that private enterprise and, and commerce was actually an important part and partner of India's socialist development. And, and you call this self-help socialism, where corporations would, would essentially fulfill certain functions and tasks that would help development over time, right? And the Tatas are a great example here. And you see how they've transformed Jamshedpur over the decades through their work. Um, it was more like a corporate town, what, what you can think of it. Um, so, and here it's, it's essentially a form of corporatism, which is what we largely kind of, kind of talk about in the West, which is the, these private firms you know, taking on and fulfilling and discharging certain social functions. And that was what was happening in India, right? Uh, and this, again, this is another quote here, which I, I should mention. Um, that you say it's private enterprise was nationalist. It was not nationalized. I think that's quite revealing. Um, I mean, the, 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 the thought that I had here was, I think, did this self-help socialism, right? Did it also lay the seeds for the big business and certain uh, conglomerates essentially consolidating power over the decades and entrenching themselves into what I think India has now, which is a crony capitalist economy with the state and capital essentially twinned at the hip. Um, yes, okay, good question. Um, let me let me begin by by coming back to your your earlier question about who propagated these myths, right? Mm -hmm. So if the myth of socialism, if part of the myth of social, there's two myths of socialism. One is, ah, it wasn't really socialist. That's the mm -hmm. leftist myth, right? They, it, it didn't conform to any of the um, of Marx's Das Kapital or or the Soviet model or whatever whatever they imagine as the the pure form of socialism so it wasn't socialist at all and the other myth is that it, it was it was um, socialism was in India was had the ambition to be like communism in the Soviet Union who is responsible for this idea that India was aiming for Soviet communism I think that's largely the Swatantra Party. So they emerged in the in the late 1950s as part of this uh, maturing of India's democracy, but also this dis discontent with the existing democratic setup uh, and Congress. And they adopt, so they're a pro-business party. Um, and Aditya Palasubramaniam has finished a, a PhD at Cambridge a couple of years ago on, on their political thoughts, which is quite interesting. Um, and so they they are pro-business party, and what do they do? They relentlessly accuse um, Nehru's governments of 
aiming for total state control, complete oppression of liberty, um, uh, and uh, you know authoritarianism. It's just a debating tactic. It's an Oxford Union debating tactic. It, it has no relation to reality, but it's scary. The, the Soviets were scary, um, and it works in in many ways as a as a way of gathering votes. It works. So. What did India have? It had, um, yeah, what I call self-help socialism. And you mentioned Tata. Of course, Tata's um, corporatism predates the, the obviously, independence. I like the example of um, Sen Rally Bicycles, um, which was set up after independence. Um, it was a kind of partnership between um, Rally Cycles and an Indian firm. And they, uh, they hire, they're in West Bengal, and they hire refugees. The government helps train refugees or pays for their training and then Send Rally Cycles um, uh, hires them. They build a corporate township. The corporate township has trees and tree-lined streets and uh, playgrounds for children. And Send Rally is not exceptional. This is what a good nationalist corporation does in India in the 1950s. They look after their workers. Um, they take this corporatist, as you say, corporatist approach. But I think they 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 genuinely saw it as nationalists. Mm -hmm. And when when the Congress Party agrees in 1955 at the Avadi session to um, pursue a socialistic pattern of society, Nehru almost sh very shortly afterwards goes to the FICCI, um, this you know big meeting of Indian businessmen, and says, "Hey, don't worry about words. You know, don't get caught up on words." What I want is you all to run your businesses, but just thinking about what's good for the nation as a whole. And a lot of them do. Mm. A lot of them do. And it's actually quite, you know, quite nice to think that they, they do that and they look after their workers. I, I don't think that that makes it egalitarian because we know that higher level managers got better housing. There was a lot of casualized labor that, that mm. um, didn't get great housing. You know, there, there was a hierarchy even in the way they looked after their workers. But did this lay the seeds to consolidate corporate power? Yes, and there's mm -hmm. there's information uh, about that. So at the very end of the period in 1965, um, the government uh, had commissions a report. And that report concludes that the most powerful companies, the Tatas and the Birlas, mm -hmm. have consolidated their power. They are they are wealthier. They are in more control of a bigger part of the economy than they were in 1947. And so this, I, it, you know, I don't. It's not true that businesses as a whole flourished and the market. I think there's a difference between businesses and the market. Yeah. So not all businesses flourished, but a lot of them were encouraged and helped. Private enterprise was encouraged and helped by the government. Um, and a lot of businesses did well, and the biggest businesses did very well. That's not the same as saying the market flourished, right? Because the free market is not the same as having businesses. And so I like to, I like to think of um, uh, India's approach to business at this point as being pro-business, mm -hmm. but selectively pro-business. We like some businesses. We're going to help those ones, that, uh, but not others. And it's yeah, it's not pro-market. There's a difference. Yeah. Yep. The, the the last podcast I did was with Mercy Ariana, who wrote this terrific book about Tata. Mm. And in it, he mentions that the 1950s, there was a lot of growth. And the government mm. actually went out of the way to deregulate markets, um, provide different kinds of incentives to capital and the private sector just to facilitate that. So yes. it's much more complicated than 
than the socialist um, ideas that we've been fed. Yeah, or the, the right-wing ideas. Yeah, I mean, take the leather industry, for example. So when the leather industry, what do they do to help the leather industry? They use um, export controls so, so that um, they ban the export of untanned leather skins. Okay, so that helps the tanning industry. Uh, what else they do, do they do? The tanning industry needs wattle. Uh, which is from trees. Uh, yeah. And most of the wattle had been imported from South Africa. Yeah. Well, India doesn't approve of um, apartheid South Africa's policies. And so they have a, the, the wattle trade is disrupted. So the government of Madras starts planting wattle for them, right? Yeah. This, is, this is the state helping business. And none of these tanneries were owned by the government. They were just assisted by them massively. Mm -hmm. um, so the myth about the state, the state, this is another myth that doesn't really go away much. Um, and here you show that we tend to focus heavily on the centralized state that saw the, the strong centralized state that was left by colonial um, rule and which India inherited and how that legacy essentially shaped and constrained India's government and policymaking over time instead of really trying to unpack and map and understand how Indian officials regarded the state from the 1940s and 50s and their attitudes and disdain towards certain aspects of the state and how they essentially improvised and experimented. You show that there was a lot of experimentation here. Um, and you, you talk about the commissions, the boards, and the other kinds of these entities that were that were um, emerging to deal with, with, with um, development. So, so state building, as you show, was 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 by no means a given. It was it was organic, it was grounded, and it kind of moved over time. Um, and there's another quote here, um, which I think is, which which reveals this. And I and 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 you say there's no doubt that state building was a priority in the early post-colonial period, but that does not mean that the makers of of independent India set out to build a Leviathan. Um, so take us through some of these independent entities, the boards, the commissions, and the corporations uh, that were established post-1947 to deal with India's massive social and economic challenges. Yeah, okay. So I think what's interesting is, yeah, the, fir the first thing you note when you begin to look at how um, Indians, Indians in government spoke about the, the state that they inherited, they weren't happy with it and they wanted it to change and they're just endless endless speeches uh, about how the government you know bureaucracy needs to be reformed we need to have a democratic state so they weren't happy with their inheritance what did they do they experimented in a million different ways um so uh with different forms of state structure so i'm going to talk about one that i love which was um the brainchild of durga by deshmukh mm. Right, and Durgabai had been um, a leader of the Mahila under Mahila Sabha um, during the nationalist period. She then married Chintaman Deshmukh, Sidi Deshmukh, um, who was finance minister in Nehru's government. He was called the uh, he was called the India's second most eligible widower in the 1950s. The first most eligible being Nehru, of course. So she marries Deshmukh and and um, becomes a man. A member of the planning commission but not in that order in the opposite order uh, and she says i want to do something for social welfare we want to look after uh, especially women and children um and what does she do she sets up the central social welfare board to coordinate voluntary efforts 
The idea is there are enough volunteers out there in India, right? They're, they're roughly, they're pretty familiar um, with the nationalist movement. And they, you know, as women themselves, the Central, Central Social Welfare Board is a group of voluntary, volunteer women who are all, who were all prominent in the nationalist movement and are um, often married or related to uh, men who are in government. They think that there are enough volunteer organizations. Why? Because they ran them, their friends ran them. Uh, and then they find, so what they want to do is just help coordinate this work of volunteers. So this is a, an imagination of the state, not as a leviathan, mm -hmm. as just assisting volunteer efforts, right? Building on the enthusiasm of, of private citizens. And then they find that actually a lot of these volunteer groups are in the cities and there's not enough work being done in villages to help women and children understand things like basic um, hygiene or um, health and nutrition for babies and stuff like that. So they set up these um, local projects, village level projects to reach out to, to, um, to village women uh, and educate them in uh, social welfare. And these are, the entire bureaucracy is is run by volunteers. The, the whole thing, so at the village level, there's a village worker and um, there are, there are um, midwives and, and there might be a craft worker as well. They are paid. The people actually doing the work at the village level are paid, but the bureaucracy which oversees that work, all volunteer. They're all supposed to be women who came up through the national movement and are doing this, this work of bureaucracy out of the goodness of their heart. It's a complete reimagination of what bureaucracy, of what service is. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't work terribly well. I mean, I, I think there were pockets where there was a success, but it turns out that the volunteers who had a lot of enthusiasm for the nationalist movement then get in their positions in the CSWB and at the, at the state level and, and um, treat lower level workers um, imperiously and don't pay them uh, and don't have any don't pay attention they're volunteers they don't pay attention to how the projects are being run in, in their in their state and so it's not a it's not a success the central social welfare board it's an amazing experiment and as a form of political thought I think it deserves more attention um, but it is I also think exemplary of what's happening in India this time, right? So uh, even community development wasn't initially a ministry. I, I mentioned before the planning commission wasn't a ministry. Uh, they're, uh, they're doing this again and again saying, oh, we wanna do this important thing. Let's experiment with how we do it. And a lot of the experiments fail and get integrated into the bureaucracy. Some of them succeed, some of them like community development succeed and get integrated into the bureaucracy. Um, so yeah, uh, and let's see. Ah, so I wanted to say one more thing about the state. It's not that it was all experimental, right? I mean, they inherited this this apparatus, and I think one thing that they had to work with was the existing disciplinary apparatus, the police and the military. And I focus on the police, but um, I think what's important, my argument there, is that they inherited the police, but they weren't happy with them. <laughs> right and part of the reason that they gave themselves so much extraordinary so many extraordinary powers in the constitution was because they knew the police didn't work well they knew that whenever there was large-scale unrest um the police couldn't find the people responsible they just arrested people in large numbers and then eventually released them whenever there was 
large number of cases in the courts. The courts got jammed up. I mean, this is the nationalists know this because they jammed the courts up as part of their anti-colonial campaigns, right? And so they do take over the disciplinary apparatus, but as soon as they do, they know it's it's not working. And so I use the example of um, prohibition in the state of Bombay to show that they try to ban alcohol, and almost as soon as they ban it, uh, there's widespread bootlegging, and the police are in it, in it, up to their up to their ears. Um, and so that's a quite a fun story about how the state doesn't work. There are lots of tragic stories about how the state doesn't work for Indians, but the the one about um, prohibition is a little bit more fun. I want to get back to a point that you made earlier about the Metruan Nehru as an architect. Um, and, and you reserve blame in the book for the Congress party um, in driving and perpetuating this myth. Um, and you argue partly to keep him as a prime minister. Um, and I, I get the sense that the BJP is doing the same now with Modi. Um, mm. Um, maybe because of the lack of other alternatives out there who could become prime minister, um, right? Do you do you think that's the case? And and are parties particularly more culpable here, or than other factors in in driving the myth making? Um, gosh, I I'm a historian, so I hesitate yeah. to to step into politics in 2022. But I think I mean, it looks to me like Modi has this cult around him. Right. And yeah, it's so, very hard to um, break. It's very hard to even like meaningfully consider an engagement. Right. And he's kind of operating at the apex where beyond reproach, essentially. Right? Yeah. And the party so, is a major part, major reason why that's the case. Mm -hmm. right? it's, yes. OK. So let's talk about cults of personality. Right. Um, and I think um, it's if you if you read Frank DeCutter's book about the about cult of personality, you can see that there are there are, there's a kind of formula for creating a cult of personality. So you elevate one individual above others. That individual claims that they can solve all the problems. Uh, loyalty to that individual is absolute. Uh, their image is carefully controlled, mm -hmm. and you're not allowed to criticize them at all. Um, and so, um, you know, the, the classic examples are, of course, Mao and Stalin, and you you professed your loyalty to Mao with a little Mao badge, uh, and Stalin, every picture of Stalin that appeared in the Soviet newspaper was approved by Stalin's office. Uh, none of them could take a joke. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And so uh, if we if we ask, does did Nehru fulfill any of those criteria? The answer is no. He didn't elevate himself above others. He preferred to work with others. He preferred to patronize others. The party invested him with this authority, or rather with this myth of like, we are indispensable, we can't live without you. Um, because I think they couldn't find an alternative, but there, he liked a joke, he was happy. You know, he, there are cuttings of um, Shankar's weekly in his personal files, like he, he, there would be a satirical cartoon of him, and he would cut it out, presumably because he liked it, <laughs> or you know. And we know that he appreciated the joke. Uh, we know that okay, free speech was not absolute. Um, there were problems with um, with uh, free speech in the 1950s, but um, journalism was was relatively free. And if we look at Modi's government. It ticks a lot of those boxes mm -hmm. for a, one individual elevated above others, uh, absolute loyalty demanded, 
criticism is um, not accepted, jokes are, are not, uh, not countenanced. Um, and I think that the point you make about parties is, is important because it takes a machine mm -hmm. to make the cult of an individual. Yeah, and Stalin wanted uh, uh, to, to be that figure in the Soviet Union, but he needed the whole apparatus of the Soviet government to make it happen. And, and the same is, is true of Modi, right? So you have to, as um, you know, the people like Hélène Mialet say, great men are produced by institutions and networks mm -hmm. and, and people who then make themselves invisible as they produce these great men. Um, so yes, the, the BJP I think is is doing that. Uh, I may have just made myself ineligible to ever get a visa again, but I, I think you're right. Mm -hmm. um, I want to end with a few brief questions. Um, what was the hardest myth to tackle in the book? Um, gosh, in some ways, I suppose I, I have two answers to that question. What the the simple one is um, the socialism myth. Because I think I could have written a book called Indian Socialism, A History in Seven Myths. There, there's a lot there because socialism encompasses development in all of its aspects um, and social reform and all sorts of things. There's, there's just so, so it's hard to keep that small. But uh, I suppose dispositionally, I am not a historian of great men. Mm -hmm. And so the myth of Nehru the architect was the hardest to, to write because... Mm -hmm. I, you know, when I come across Nehru in the files, he's, uh, he acts with integrity. Um, whenever I see his initial, whenever I saw his initials on a file, I thought um, I, I didn't see nefarious purposes or um, corruption. Or, you know, there were a lot of high ideals, but I'm not one to put somebody on a pedestal. So mm -hmm. I struggled with how to deal with this, this great man um, mm -hmm. and I mean, my, as I say, my solution was to help him down from his pedestal. Mm -hmm. um, when will we get a good contemporary biography of Nehru? Wow. Um, so part of the problem, part of the problem is he produced so much material, mm -hmm. right? You could spend an entire career not writing a biography of Nehru, right? Of just thinking, okay, I just need another year looking at his papers. Mm -hmm. Um I mean, I think Sarvapali Gopal's work is excellent. Mm. Uh, and uh, I, I'm not I'm not one who's inclined to read biographies as a way of understanding politics. Mm. Um, but I, I, I'd be surprised if you could surpass Gopal's work. Mm. Uh, and, and finally, what are you working on now? Uh, so I've got a new project on um, environmentalism in India. Uh, not so much Narmada Bachao and Chipko and things like that, but about environmental regeneration, how that, um, how projects of rewilding or regeneration are actually generative of um, imaginations of the past, of um, new forms of uh, extraction and higher end economic hierarchy. Um, uh, and I'm obsessed with the Ban Mahotsav and mm -hmm. uh, tree planting campaigns. So from the 1950s, there they have these mass tree camping, tree planting campaigns, um, and most of them fail. I really like mm. a good failure, so I'm I'm working on that at the minute. Uh, Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. I enjoyed this conversation.
And that was Taylor Sherman, LSE historian and the author of Nehru's India, A History in Seven Myths, published by Princeton University Press. I'm Karthik Nachupan, and you've been listening to The Lake Podcast. <laughs>